So this morning, we're going to be talking about navigating our Gethsemane. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 22, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but once every few months I sit down with a Bible and, and spend a lot of time on, in prayer over what I'm going to bring for the next several months as far as the sermons I'm going to bring or lessons and, and different things like that. And I make a, a pre, it's called a preaching calendar, so I know where I'm going and what I'm going to be speaking on. And it, it takes a lot of the stress of, well, what am I going to say next Sunday? Because um, I already know what I'm going to say next Sunday. Well, today, I was scheduled to finish the Created for Significance series. But actually, ironically, as I was beginning the message last Sunday, I felt God speak to me that instead of finishing that series on Easter Sunday, that I should bring a message that was more Easter related to you. And that leading from God reminded me of one of my favorite quotes that you may have heard me say before. It's from the great evangelist D.L. Moody, who said that the most effective preachers used by God preach with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. Meaning that if you're going to preach the word, make it relevant to the lives that we are living today. So on this Easter Sunday, we're going to look through what Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane and see that how that can bring encouragement for the times that we live in today. Because the time we live in today can be pretty rough at times. Just with everything going on in our nation, our lives, and everything else, it can feel pretty rough. So to set the stage for what Jesus, where Jesus is at in his life, he's living the last night of his life here on earth. He just had left the Last Supper with his disciples. He had instituted communion, and now he's walking toward the Garden of Gethsemane. If you read John's Gospel, he's given them the final instructions before he goes to the cross. And he's going toward that Garden of Gethsemane. Judas has left. He's gone. He's, he's set up his, his plan of betrayal. And that's weighing on Jesus' heart because he knows that one of the twelve is, is now going to betray him. And now Jesus and disciples are taking a late night walk to end up in the Garden of Gethsemane. The walk would be probably walking from here to um, the town of Lincoln's shop, if you want to know the, the distance. Kind of down by the railroad tracks going toward the health care center there. So it was a little bit of a walk. And as they walk into the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is thinking about what's coming. This is weighing, everything is just weighing on him. He knows in a matter of hours he's going to be beaten to the point of being barely recognizable. The flesh is largely going to be stripped off of his back, and a wooden crossbeam is going to be laid across his, his bloody shoulders, and he's going to be forced to carry it up a small mountain, to be crucified, where he'll hang in agony for, for about six hours. He knows this is the culmination of the plan of salvation. Jesus knows that this is the home stretch, but the home stretch for him is going to be the worst 16 hours or so of his life. And this is where Jesus is right now. He knows it's going to be very difficult. He's going to face an incredible physical test. And not only the physical test, but the spiritual assault that is going to come upon him. 
All of hell is going to attack him at this point. In his humanity, can you blame him for being terrified? Can you blame him for having a heavy heart at this point? So as we read Luke's account here, I want you to put yourself in his place. Knowing you're about to literally plunge into the worst pain a human being can experience, the worst torment, and to literally go through the worst hell anyone has ever experienced. Luke twenty-two thirty-nine. 39, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Father God, I ask, Lord, that you just take this scripture and show us today how we can get through our time in the Garden of Gethsemane. Whether that means just surviving and thriving in the day that we live in right now with all the chaos and uncertainty, or whether there's something we're going through right now in our lives that is incredibly difficult. Help us to know how to navigate through it as you did. Help us to see the truths that you showed us and live them in faith. Father God, I just give you this next 30 minutes or so and ask that you touch our mind, heart, soul, and spirit to see the truth of your word. And I ask this in your name. Amen. I mentioned that we live in kind of trying times, don't we? Many of us are deeply concerned about the government coming and stripping away freedoms. We're concerned about the, the, the fate of the nation and in which way we're going. We're, direct, we're worried about the direction the COVID virus is going to go next, if we're going to have another spike. We're worried about the, the moral and spiritual climate of our nation. Talking with people, they said they, they're almost living in a dark anticipation right now, like, what's coming next? What shoe is going to drop tomorrow? What major event is going to further cause us harm as a people and as a nation? When I, it feels kind of like when I was a teenager, I worked at Six Flags Great America in Gurney, Illinois, and I got to work on the roller coasters. And one of them, it was called the Demon, ironically, it takes you up a really large hill and then drops you into a tunnel into utter darkness where you can't see the twists and the turns. That's kind of what feeling or living in 2021 feels like. It feels like we're right at the top of that roller coaster, that anticipation as you look over the edge, knowing that you're going to plunge downward into an uncertain future. It feels like what the Bible calls that valley of the shadow of death. Well, those feelings that we feel right now, Jesus is experiencing times 10 in the Garden of Gethsemane. So we should look at this morning, how did Jesus deal with it? How did Jesus just have that courage and, and drum that up within him to continue? 
And how did Jesus finally make that decision to bend to God's will when everything inside his humanity screamed at him to run, screamed at him to call a couple legions of angels, screamed at him to, to change the plan of salvation? I think by studying Jesus' actions here, we will learn to deal with our times in the Garden of Gethsemane and learn to navigate it as he did. So let's break this down. What's the first thing we can look at from Jesus in the garden? Number one, acknowledge your fear. It's okay if you're afraid. The key is to give it to God. Sometimes, as Christians, we are afraid to let people see what we really feel. Particularly when it comes to a negative emotion. When it comes to fear, depression, feeling overwhelmed. These emotions that we think if we show them, people will judge us for being weak in our faith. Anyone ever felt like that? You're too afraid of other people's opinions of you that you, you can't drop the church mask for fear of being made to feel less of a Christian than someone else? I think most, if not everyone here, has experienced that at some point in their lives. So let me ask you a question. Was Jesus weak in the Garden of Gethsemane? I mean, after all, verse 44 here says that Jesus was so freaked out, he was sweating blood. That's an anxiety attack. That's an anxiety attack par none. It's a medical condition called hematidrosis. It means that you're so scared, your blood pressure and your pulse rise to the point where not only your plasma, that, that liquid clear part of the blood leaks out, but the very blood, red blood cells leak out of your pores. And you're literally sweating blood. It's an actual human condition. It's fairly rare because most people just have a massive stroke when their blood pressure gets that high and dies. But this is where Jesus is right now. He's having such a bad anxiety attack, so afraid, so dreading what is to come, that he's stressed beyond all human ability to deal with it. And in his humanity, it's reacting with this hematidrosis and this sweating of blood. So what did he do? He asked his friends, pray with me. That's step one in acknowledging your fear. Humble yourself by asking for help and then go and pray. Can I be honest just for a minute? Let's just drop the mass. Because most people can see when you're having a problem. Most of us are not very good at hiding our emotions. We, we, we know when you're going through something. So don't be afraid to ask a few trusted friends to come and sit and pray with you. I say this over and over again, and I'm going to continue to say it over and over again. We as a church are to be a hospital for the spiritually sick, for those who need help. I don't want us to be a mausoleum of a bunch of dead people thinking about what God did yesterday. We are to be a, a hospital for the spiritually sick. We exist to help people through the valleys of the shadow of death. 
Not just give a flippant, well, I'll pray for you, and then forget about it as soon as they walk out the door. But to honestly love and care for one another. You see, that's what Jesus did. In the other gospel accounts, it said that he brought along 11 friends to help him. And then took his three closest friends in even deeper to witness just how much anguish he was in. Ask for help and then pray. And step two is to pour out your heart to God. Too often we think our prayers need to be super formal with these and thous and amens and, and all these kind of things. And we kind, of, we kind of get into that in church service where we sound a little bit more formal. But that's not what Jesus was praying here. Jesus was venting to God. You know, Tammy recently got an Instapot, so I'm becoming familiar with pressure cookers. And it occurred to me that most time, most of us are like little pressure cookers. We're full of steam, we're full of heat, of negativity or, or fear or doubt or unbelief that can explode at any moment if that lid fails. This last Wednesday, I was doing some cl the clinical on the neurological floor at, at Marshfield Hospital, and I was teamed with a very experienced male nurse who was showing me nursing flow. Nursing flow means that you have to take people with all their problems, all their medications, all their treatments, multiply, you know, each person, and then you get like five of them, and you have to organize your day to make sure everything gets done. And then if one person starts to crash over here, you still have to make sure the other four get taken care of all over here. And what that can do is create a lot of stress because you have a lot of responsibility and a lot of stuff that has to be to get done. And so you have to delegate, you have to conference with other providers, you can meet resistance from medical staff who don't see what you're seeing, and it just it, it creates a, a big bubble not in your gut, that you just need to vent sometimes. And, he tell, and this guy told me, he said, what it helps him when he gets totally whacked out, stressed out about what's going on on the floor is he goes into the boss's office and just vents. He's, he walks in, he says, Brian, can I talk to you for a minute? He goes, said, sure. He closes the door and just lets loose. I can't believe these doctors. I can't believe that aid over there. I can't believe you, you're, you're putting too many patients on me. And just vents, just gets it all out. And then when he's all over, Brian just looks at him and says, okay, feel better? He goes, well, yeah, I feel kind of a lot better. And that's all it is. Brian's not going to change anything. Brian's not going to go and yell at a doctor for him. He's not really going to do anything. He just needed to let it get out. He said it's very cathartic. And this idea of venting can actually be very healthy when it comes to your relationship with God. Venting is simply releasing that emotional pressure that comes from bad and challenging circumstances. So if we take it and apply that to this, for many of us who have been Christians for a long time, talking about venting to God sounds a little sacrilegious, doesn't it? It kind of sounds like, I don't know if I want to like vent to God. I mean, wouldn't that make him mad? I mean, wouldn't that, well, doesn't he expect me to have a stiff upper lip? Doesn't he expect me to, to just be able to take it? Well, he's not interested in that. He's not impressed with you holding it in, knowing that it causes havoc on your emotions and your body. He doesn't want you to exist in this constant state of fear and anxiety. 
He wants to hear it. After all, what do we call him? Father God. Intimate God. Jesus would call God Abba. He would call him Daddy. That's what that word means. It's a very intimate form of Father. He's not this distant, uninterested God that pays child support once in a while. He is a God that wants to be intimately involved in every part of your lives. Saying that, when it comes to, to venting, there are a few rules that we should follow. We talk about spiritual venting. This is something between you and God. You and God. And this is where many people kind of mess it up. They vent to each other. Sometimes that can cause problems. That can cause broken confidences, gossip, and all kinds of stuff. So if you need to vent to let those negative emotions out, you always want to vent upward in your relationship. Okay? There was a, a time at work where I was really kind of frustrated with, with something that was going on in leadership, and I was, I was venting to one of my coworkers, and my boss overheard me. And I could just see, he's, he's actually a really even-keeled, calm guy. He never gets angry. And he came over to me and kind of almost, he didn't push me against the wall, but kind of just kind of did one of these against the wall. And he said, in my office right now. I was like, I've never seen him get mad. I was like, what did I do? And so I walked in, and this is where he kind of explained this to me. He goes, if you need to vent, you come to me and vent. It doesn't mean I'm going to change anything, but I... I want you to vent here because when you vent here, you cause everybody else to get anxious. You cause everybody else to get fearful. You come and vent to me. And it's kind of the same thing that we have in our personal spiritual lives. It's okay to share your needs with everybody, but when it comes to an emotional venting, you should do that upwards, not necessarily this way and never downward. So if you have children or or subordinates, if you're at work, you don't vent downward to them because that creates all kinds of problems, especially with children. Sometimes we need to get before that throne of God and vent. And some people may be thinking, you really want me to vent to God to just let it all out? Yeah. Be just like Jesus. Jesus is venting here in Gethsemane. Now, the Bible writers put it in, a, in ways that we don't quite understand because it's translated from Greek into, into English. But these, when you read the words and, and, and the tenses and, and how he is saying it in the Greek language, he is really almost crying out to God. You also see this in much of the Old Testament, particularly the prophetic works. There are very honest dialogues between the Old Testament heroes of the faith in God. Let me just read you a couple. Jeremiah vented to God. In fact, he accused God of being cruel, evil, and deceptive. In Jeremiah 20, verse 7, he said, Oh God, you deceived me. I was deceived. You overpowered me, and I prevailed. He was venting. King David, a man after God's own heart, pretty regularly vented his honest emotions to God. You can see it in the Psalms, 1 and 2 Samuel. In Psalm 13, he said, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? 
How long will you let your, my enemy triumph over me? David is expressing his honest, unfiltered emotion before God. And finally, Jesus here in the garden. In Mark's version of the events in the garden, Jesus confesses this to his three best friends. He said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. This is one of those translation things that we don't get quite what he's saying in 21st century English. Jesus is saying, I'm so stressed out, I feel like I want to die. That's venting. Then Jesus goes and prays to God to change the entire plan of salvation that they worked out together before God said, let there be light. When he says in Mark 14, 6, take this cup from me. He is begging God, venting with God. So I encourage you this morning, be like Jesus. This is how he handled that darkest moment in his life. And once those emotions are dealt with, we can move on to the second thing we learn from Jesus in the garden. And that is to surrender to God. I, I really like combat sports. I'm kind of a, a fan of MMA. When I, when I grew up, um, my father... One of his best friends was named Roger Sanderson. Roger Sanderson in the uh, late, mid to late 1980s was a U.S. Karate, heavyweight karate champion. He was known as Roger the Sandman Sanderson because if you got in a ring with him, you were going to sleep. He was going to knock you out within the first round or two. He was that good that fast. Roger was also one of my senseis growing up. He was known for having a very aggressive style of karate. Anybody seen the karate kid? Yeah, so he was, wasn't quite as bad as Martin Cove's sensei crease, where he's like strike first, strike hard, no mercy, sir, kind of thing, but kind of similar. It was, it was strike first, attack hard, and keep attacking until your enemy's unable to keep fighting. That's what he taught us. My mother's side of the family, my grandfather, was really into boxing. He was um, rising up in the ranks within the military when he was in, but then he got sent to the Pacific Theater. He got injured in his neck, so he couldn't box anymore because one good hit, he would die. So, but that didn't stop him from turning it on, Friday Night Fights. So one of the three channels that you can get in Hayward, we could watch Friday Night Fights, and he would sit there and yell at the TV at the boxers about everything they were doing wrong. Well, now we have something called mixed martial arts in which you can put everything together. You can put wrestling into it, karate into it, jiu-jitsu, Thai boxing, kickboxing, judo. They're all combined. You can be used in this sport. And in MMA, you can definitely knock a person out with a punch or kick. But you can also grapple and wrestle or do jiu-jitsu, which is a Brazilian form of martial arts. You have to be on guard for somebody getting a hold of you and getting you in something called a rear naked choke. It's basically, they just put your, their arm around you like that, squeeze the carotid arteries, put you to sleep. And if you get knocked out or you submit you ta and tap, you lose the fight. Sometimes God allows or sends hard times because he needs to put us in that kind of submission hold. He needs to get us to tap and surrender to his will for our lives. 
And how does He do that? He allows or He puts us in conditions and situations that can be very uncomfortable. We're looking a lot at Jesus in the garden here, but there's another man called Jacob in the Bible who had the same issue for, or the same situation, problem. For years he had been doing things his own way. Jacob usually did things his own way through cheating, lying, and deception. The, pro, the thing is, is that God has big plans for him, but he can't use him where he's at right now. And, and Jacob keeps kicking against God. He keeps wanting to do things his way. keeps wanting to rebel against the plans that God has for his life. So God sends his estranged big brother after him. The brother that is more powerful. He's stronger and he is a warrior. By the way, this is the first victim of Jacob. Because Jacob cheated him out of his inheritance. So understandably... His brother is very angry with him right now and wants him dead. And he even said, I'm going to kill this guy. Jacob now has nowhere to turn to except for God. God sends an angel, which is probably the pre-incarnate Jesus in disguise, but he sends an angel to wrestle with him. Jacob wrestles with him for hours and hours and hours, stubbornly being not willing to yield until the morning sun rises. And figuratively speaking, the angel puts a hip lock on him and forces him to tap out and surrender to God's will for his life. Sometimes God needs you to tap out and surrender to his will for your life. And Jesus, in all of his venting, all of his struggle, all of his anxiety here in the garden, finally gets to that point that these times of darkness are trying to accomplish, and that is surrender. Don't always run away from these difficult times. We can spend our entire lives running from difficult things when the difficult things is being sent by God to accomplish something wonderful in our lives. The third lesson we learn from Jesus in the garden is this. Hold on to the vision or calling that you have from God. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 12, verse 2, reading from the Living Bible. It says, Keep your eyes on Jesus, our leader and instructor. He was willing to die a shameful death on the cross because of the joy he knew would be his afterwards. And now he sits in a place of honor by the throne of God. In the Assembly of God, ministers have several different credential levels. You start out at certified, um, you spend a couple years there, you go to license, you spend a few years there, you take another test, you have to sit down before a, a panel interview, which is actually kind of harsh. They deliberately try to get a rise out of you to see if you have the temperament to be a pastor and see if you'll like lash out at them or anything. I mean, they, they kind of twist those screws into you a lot. And I, I was, my temperament is not one to fly off the handle, so the Michael Jackson, Pastor Michael Jackson, was the leader of that interview. He said, you acquitted yourself very well. You kept your cool, and we really gave it to you. And um, I just, I re really remember that. The ordination interview, though, is very different. During the ordination interview, Larry Levy was our district superintendent at the time, and he only had one question for me. 
Before they were asking, what would you do here? What would you do there? And do you really believe this and this? And, you know, they bring up everything, private life, everything. Ordination interview, very calm, very different. Larry just said, ask me about your, or tell me about your calling. And after I finished telling the panel how God had called me, how he'd used me since then, Larry said this. He said, I want you to hold on tight to what you just told us. Write it down. Look at it once in a while because it's that confession and vision of what God has given you that will help you through the dark times that can and will be yours as a pastor to God's people. And honestly, I think that was the best ministry advice I'd ever gotten. And believe it or not, it mirrors what the author of Hebrews is saying what got Jesus through his tough times. Again, I'll read it again. Keep your eyes on Jesus, our leader and our instructor. He was willing to die a shameful death on the cross because the joy he knew would be his afterwards. He had that vision of what he needed to accomplish. And that vision of what God would do through him that would save the world is what got him through Gethsemane, what got him through the cross, what got him through the beatings. That vision helped him stay on the path that God had. Vision will remind you that right now it might be Friday night for you. It might be in the Garden of Gethsemane. You might feel like you're heading toward a cross. That there's nothing but fear and darkness and, and doubt. But Sunday is on the way for you. We need to remember that as Christians, it may seem like our entire society is coming apart at the seams right now. But the Bible tells us and assures us Sunday is on the way. It may seem like the enemy is coming in like the flood, that there's nothing but darkness around us, but Sunday is on the way. And it may seem like there is no more hope. It may seem like the lights have gone out. And God has just left us to judgment. But my friends, the Bible tells us Sunday is on the way. It might seem like your trials, your hardship, your sickness, your depression, fear, doubt, or unbelief is going to overwhelm and overpower you. I assure you, beloved, Sunday is on the way. You too someday will have an empty tomb because the power of God is going to lift us from this earth to live eternity with Him in heaven. And on that day, just like Jesus, resurrection will be our victory song. And that is what navigating through Gethsemane can get, give us. That is what God did through raising Jesus Christ from the dead is show us that no matter what is before us, He is going to lead us through and bring us to our own personal resurrection.